We love you, Lord Jesus. We trust that you know that um, from our hearts as we worship, worshiped you this morning. And now as we open your word, we, um, we pray that our love would shine for you in our attentiveness and our obedience to your word. And please, Lord, show us the, um, the needs of our lives that we might follow you closer and, uh, and delight you more. We ask in your name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Matthew, and uh, we're beginning chapter 18 this morning. I'd like you to turn with me to chapter 18. Great to be um, with the saints this morning and to, um, to study God's word, looking at the life of Jesus. A few um, considerations in background as we prepare for, um, uh, for our lesson when Jesus spoke, he communicated, he revealed profound things. He taught, he taught truth, which is otherworldly to the amazement of his hearers and to the uh, alarm of his enemies. In that sense, Jesus could not open his mouth without being intense, revolutionary, extreme, overpowering. He communicated truths that we would learn from no one else in no other way. Scripture doesn't record mundane things, details or instructions uh, from the Lord Jesus. And if you came this morning expecting something provocative from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, uh, we trust that you're not going to be disappointed. A second consideration is that the disciples spent much time on the road. Uh, there was no public transit. There were no 12 passenger vans. Um, so the miles that they covered outside uh, a boat were strictly on foot. And it gave them plenty of time for discussing the, um, the important issues of their lives. A uh, third consideration is that um, at least one Bible commentator has... Um, pointed to evidence that these disciples were young men, the, um, the 12 followers of the Lord Jesus, and with the exception of Peter, they were teenagers. Does that, um, does that surprise you? Um, and I can share that evidence with you later if you're interested. In review, we, uh, we go back to the beginning of, um, of the Gospel of Matthew and we see as the disciples were chosen, as the Lord chose them, uh, they anticipated the imminent, the, the, the imminent, the soon visible establishment of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus preached in Matthew 4, 17, the kingdom of God is at hand. And hadn't he also taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prospect of Jesus' uh, immediate visible reigning as king rejoiced the heart of his followers. But then uh, we saw recently that he began to reveal to them, uh, Matthew 16, 21, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and, and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. 
the disciples did not quickly give up their confidence that Jesus' visible reign was now. Then the Lord took Peter, James, and John to a high mountain where his appearance was gloriously transfigured. And this may have reignited the uh, disciples' expectations of the Lord's reign now. Even so, the Lord repeated his prophecy. And last week, we read um, in Matthew 17, Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. So with that in mind, let's, um, let's go ahead and read Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. We could entitle our study this morning, The Lord Jesus, Three-Part Antidote to the Poison of Pride. Because that's what he's dealing with in the hearts of these disciples is, um, is pride. Let's, um, let's study this passage by, an by answering several questions. First, what's so damaging about pride? What's, what's, uh, what's wrong with, um, with pride? Um, why can't a person enter the kingdom of heaven without being converted and becoming as a little child? Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then finally, what do we miss by not receiving children in Jesus' name? The poison of pride. Let's, um, let's think in verse 1 about, um, about the poison of pride. And if you, um, if you have your parallel passage sheet, um, Luke distributed these with... Um, with this morning's meeting announcement, uh, let's refer to that and read Mark 9, 33 through 37. Of course, you can open your Bible there, Mark 9, 33 through 37. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And Luke um, gives this account. He said, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. So what's wrong with uh, self-importance? What's wrong with uh, blowing your own horn? Uh, let's um, consider what pride is. Years before 
um, meeting the Lord Jesus. I sought to know the workings, the inner workings of human behavior because um, people, um, people mystified me in, in uh, what motivated them. So I enrolled in a psychology course in the local junior college. The um, psychology professor made a statement in that, um, in that course that has stuck with me. Um, he made the statement about human nature that seems to be a good starting point for our definition of pride. He said something like this, each one of us feels superior to others in at least one ability or area of life. Each one of us has a sense of superiority over our fellows in at least one area of life. And he wasn't condemning pride, he wasn't condoning pride, um, but simply observing. So let's, uh, let's start our definition of pride by saying that it is a self-superiority. It's a feeling uh, superior to others, I'm faster, I'm smarter, I'm more attractive, I'm quicker, in some way greater than those around me. In the case of these disciples, each felt that he was more qualified than the others to have the mastery, to have the authority in uh, Jesus' kingdom. There was rivalry among the disciples. The um, dictionary defines a rival as one who is in pursuit of the same object as another, one striving to reach or obtain something which another is obtain, uh, attempting to obtain and which only one can possess. Let's add to our definition of pride, self-assertiveness. Each, um, each disciple asserted his claim to prominence in the kingdom of heaven. Let's, uh, let's follow with the disciples on the road uh, to Capernaum and uh, listen to the conversation. Ah, Peter, I'm really the lead disciple. I'm the one who speaks out first, right or wrong. I'm obviously the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Judas Iscariot, hey, I'm the treasurer, you guys, uh, you can't do anything without me. I keep our finances in order. John, the Lord favors me with leaning on his breast. Who could be closer to the king? Andrew, I was the first disciple chosen. I have seniority. And so on and on it went, this, um, uh, this disputing, this contention, this strife among the uh, disciples. You, you think it would a, uh, end after a while, but even at the, uh, even at the Last Supper, uh, Luke recorded that there was rivalry among the disciples, and that word rivalry that he used is uh, defined as the love of strife, an eagerness to contend. In his commentary, Bill McDonald noted that it was heartbreaking to realize that as the Lord Jesus had been telling them about his impending death, the disciples were esteeming themselves better than others. Do you sense a danger here? Twelve ambitious followers want only 
uh, want what only one can have? How destructive is pride? It generates strife. In Proverbs 13.10, we read, By pride comes nothing but strife. The NIV uh, translates it this way, Pride only breeds quarrels. Pride brings confusion. In James 3.16, we read that where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. Pride is self-deceptive. Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Had the Lord Jesus not intervened and stopped this um, uh, arrogant wrangling, the disciples may have had no usefulness in his ministry. The self-interest of these disciples threatened to ruin the church even before the Lord had instituted it. We see something of the destructive power of pride in the problems which the Apostle Paul addressed uh, in his letter to the Corinthians. And I wish we could say in the modern church that our, our church splits were over doctrinal convictions and not a feeling of self-superiority and animosity toward our fellow brethren. So really, that, um, that shows uh, the problem of pride. It shows the destructiveness of, of pride, what's wrong with pride. And so let's, um, let's look then at the Lord Jesus' uh, three-part antidote to pride's poison. In verse, uh, verse 2, Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus called the little child and he said, come here, come on over. I want you to sit right here. These, uh, these men aren't going to hurt you. These are, these are my disciples. And um, uh, how old, how old do you think this child was? Uh, for the sake of our study this morning, I guess he was a youngster, two or three years old. And uh, I think of him, I, when I, I think of this youngster, I think of Ethan Long. And um, he was Ethan's age or maybe, uh, maybe a little bit older. The Lord gives a condition for entering the kingdom of heaven. And by kingdom of heaven, we're talking not about a mere profession, but about the inward reality, about faith. Jesus says you must be converted. That, uh, that word has several meanings. In this context, it means to turn or to change. If on my way to the chapel, I forgot my Bible, I forgot my cell phone, I must turn from my current course to a different direction. In this case, a full U-turn not on the freeway. Kenneth Wiest translated this part of the verse, you must reverse 
your current trend of thought. That thought is um, thoughts about ourselves, thoughts about the Lord, thoughts about his salvation. And he said, you must become as little children. To enter the kingdom of heaven, a person must abandon his thoughts of personal merit, uh, how he thinks that he deserves um, uh, a place in heaven. He must abandon his, um, his greatness, uh, his um, illusions of grandeur, and take the lowly position of a child. He must acknowledge his sinfulness and unworthiness and his need for Jesus as his only savior. I bring no personal attractiveness to the Lord when I come to him in my need. This attitude should continue throughout a person's Christian life. You know, a key question for disciples is um, uh, both then and now, what is it that I deserve? What do I deserve? What do I really uh, merit? Not what has God given me or uh, what has God promised, but uh, really of myself, what do I deserve? It brings me back to the reality that I have no entitlements. I have no empowerment, no inalienable rights. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, <coughs> who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? This is the first part of the Lord Jesus prescription for the plague of pride. It keeps us from claiming superiority over our fellow believers. With the exception of Judas, the disciples had turned their thinking already regarding their soul's need. But it's obvious that they needed further turning to conduct themselves as subjects of the king, as followers of the Lord. John Newton wrote, as a little child relies on a care beyond his own, knows he's neither great nor wise, fears to stir a step alone, let me thus with thee abide as my father guard and guide. What seems to keep some people from receiving Jesus as savior is their intellectual pride. They have to figure it all out before making their decision to follow him. Nicodemus seems to, be, to have been one of these who at least initially wanted to understand and approve all the inner workings before he believed. How many have um, lived in defiance and rejection of the Lord Jesus uh, into eternity because of their endless questioning? Catherine Hankey um, wrote in her hymn, uh, Tell Me the Old, Old Story. She wrote, Tell me the story simply as to a little child. William Cooper wrote, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. We don't have to figure it all out. Here's, um, 
Here's an imaginary interview with, uh, with our little child. Youngster, who gave you the nice house you live in and the clothes you wear? And without uh, hesitation, he says, Daddy! Mommy! And uh, asking the uh, youngster, who loves you? I'm sorry, who gave you the good breakfast that you had this morning and lunch and dinner? Mommy! Daddy! Who loves you more than anyone else in the whole world? Daddy! Mommy! The little child doesn't need to know his parents' high school grade point average. He doesn't need to, um, to know their combined annual income or their political affiliation. He knows his parents, and that's enough. He receives their love, their benefits. And so we should turn our thinking and, uh, and become as little children. This, uh, this is the medicine that the Lord Jesus prescribes. The second is, in verse 4, to humble ourselves as little children. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as his little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The little child does not humble himself so that others will exalt his humility. The child is humble already with no ambitions for recognition or fame. Imagine the chairman of a uh, Fortune 500 corporation calling his board members to a meeting and setting a child before them and telling them, you need to humble yourselves as this little child. If the board members heeded the chairman's instruction, business would run much differently. Gone would be the corporate politics, the backbiting, the stepping over one another for promotion. And so we, we gain an appreciation here for the Lord Jesus um, before these ambitious uh, disciples setting the child before them, telling them they must humble themselves. We see an amazing example of this in King David. And I'd like, to, uh, I'd like us to turn to Psalm 131 and read there. Psalm 131. David wrote, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Look at what David expressed here. He said, um, my heart is not haughty. I'm not full of myself. I'm not lifted up in my own estimation, not expecting others to do so either nor my eyes lofty. He wasn't looking enviously toward the rich. He wasn't looking arrogantly down to the poor. Nor did he occupy himself with things too high for him, great matters, 
things too profound for me. Of um, Anthony Norris Groves, it was written, my firm purpose is, by the grace of God, to follow simply the word of God, contending for what it plainly reveals with boldness, and with respect to those things not so plainly revealed, to remain in doubt. How does one reconcile the election of God with, uh, with man's responsibility? Uh, theologians have been wrestling with that one for uh, at least 2,000 years. It's too profound for me. It's too wonderful. I can't, I can't figure it out. And David was uh, willing to admit, hey, there are things that I don't know and I'm not going to know until I reach the Lord, until I, I see him. David quieted himself in the Lord. He was even-tempered through both prosperity and trials. He wrote in Psalm 62, Truly, my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He, is my, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How was David like a weaned child? A weaned child is one who no longer nurses at his mother's breast. A weaned child has lost one of the major comforts of his young life, but he finds satisfaction in something better, in solid food, in maturity. David's experience was one of losing much, but always always gaining something better. So we should humble ourselves as a weaned child, content with our father's wise bestowment, with his provision of what we need. We see a more modern example of this in the life of George Mueller. Many of us are familiar with um, Mueller, if you haven't read the uh, biography by A.T. Pearson, please uh, read that. You'll be uh, edified. Mueller cared for over 10,000 orphans. Not 10, not 1,000, but 10,000 orphans during his lifetime. He provided educational opportunities for these orphans. He established 117 schools, which offered Christian education to more than 120,000 students, all through prayer, all by asking the Lord for guidance and provision and not asking people for a dime, for a cent. In his biography, uh, Pearson writes, in many things, he, uh, George Mueller, was in knowledge and in strength to outgrow childhood and to become a man for it marks immaturity when we err through ignorance and are overcome through weakness. But in faith, he always continued to be a little child. Hudson Taylor well reminds us that while in nature, the normal order of growth is from childhood to manhood and so to maturity, in grace, 
the true development is perpetually backward toward the cradle. We must become and continue as little children, not losing, but rather gaining childlikeness of spirit. The disciple's maturest manhood is only the perfection of his childhood. George Mueller was never so really, truly, fully a little child in all his relations to his father as when in the 93rd year of his age. The pages of scripture show the wreckage of lives given to self-interest through self-reliance and arrogance. We need but study the, um, the lives of Absalom, of um, Haman, of the uh, kings of um, Israel in the divided kingdom to, uh, to see how destructive uh, pride is. Jesus answers the question, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He says, whoever humbles himself as this little child. What is the third part of our antidote for this poison. He says in verse five, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Years ago, there was an advertisement on the radio, something like, there is a despised sector of humanity, persons of limited capacity who can't sign their own name they can't discern their left hand from their right. It's our young children. And so when the Lord says to receive, that word uh, by definition is to welcome, to care for, to show hospitality to. How is care for children a cure for pride? Simply that true greatness is seen in humbling ourselves to love and to care for the helpless, for the despised, for those who um, I have no expectation of return. And I'd like to propose uh, a couple scenarios to illustrate this, um, this concern or the lack thereof. Let's, uh, let's say, um, by illustration that um, between meetings at the chapel, a small crowd gathers around a visiting preacher or a returning missionary, eager to hear, eager to share what, um, what he or she has done. At the same time, there's another visitor across the chapel, a young, a young person, obviously nervous, waiting for someone to talk with, who will humble himself to leave the joy of, uh, and honor of fellowship with the esteemed worker to talk with the lonely child. Second illustration, commenting on the refreshing hospitality that he received at a family's home, a friend asked, yeah, well, uh, how are the host's children doing? And uh, the, um, the man who enjoyed the hospitality said, um, oh, 
I don't recall talking to the children at all during the afternoon. And a third illustration is um, a youngster is sick um, in the hospital. Are we as eager to um, visit the youngster in the hospital as we are um, one of the laboring saints in our meeting? Thank the Lord for our parents and Sunday school teachers and Awana leaders and Calvary cadet leaders who take a special interest in their children and the children of um, strangers to our meeting. Jesus said that the care we show for these children is uh, care that he accepts as to himself. In Mark 9, um, 36, he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. For the remainder of his, um, uh, his prescription, the Lord Jesus takes this little child who'd been um, patiently uh, sitting and he, uh, he takes him right into his arms. What a picture of, of tenderness, of care. And our scene this morning closes with um, Jesus confronting his, uh, his 12 disciples um, with this uh, precious one held close. Receive this little one and you receive me. Did the disciples learn from the Lord's example and from his instruction? Well, we have to see. How will your week be different? If you haven't already received the Lord Jesus as your savior, reverse your train, your trend of thought, abandon your intellectual pride and trust him like a little child. Abandon your, your 101 objections and receive him as a child. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, but you see yourself superior to your fellows, will you come down to us and be content with the gifts and the ministry opportunities that the Lord has given you? Finally, those who say they have time for Jesus, but not for children, what does the Lord Jesus say? Let's pray. Thank you so much for instruction this morning, for your example, Lord Jesus. You are a tender shepherd, um, a compassionate Lord, a caring, um, a caring master. And we, um, we praise you that there is an antidote for pride. Um, we struggle, and uh, here you give, um, you give us a cure, a peace that passes understanding. Uh, we pray that you might remind us as we go through this week to apply the truths that you have here in, uh, in, this, in this scripture. We ask in your name. Amen.